Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Have you ever wondered what exactly is happening in your body when you get triggered? Why do we go into rage or feel like leaving or completely shut down? Have you ever experienced conflict and thought something like, if only my body could just calm down, then I might be able to actually resolve this? Or have you experienced that moment of getting nowhere in a conversation with your partner because they are triggered? There's a reason that we keep coming back to this issue of safety and being triggered. That's because both your ability to feel safe in the container of your relationship and your ability to restore safety when inevitably you aren't feeling it is at the heart of your being able to do relationship well, especially once the honeymoon stage of your relationship is over. Creating safety with your partner is at the heart of the work of people like John Gottman, Sue Johnson, Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, Stan Tatkin, and creating safety within yourself is at the heart of the work of Peter Levine, Dick Schwartz, Margaret Paul, basically everyone that we've had on this podcast. In other words, we're diving deep because this understanding is key to helping you in almost every aspect of your relationship with others and your relationship with yourself. Today's guest is Dr. Steve Porges, creator of the polyvagal theory and a distinguished university scientist at the Kinsey Institute a research professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. For more than 40 years, Steve has been working on this theory of how our vagus nerve works, and his work has completely transformed our understanding of how we respond to obstacles, adversity, conflict, stress, and trauma. How the very same nerve pathways that support our health can also be recruited for defense and create health problems. If you've heard of fight, flight, and freeze, that's all based on his work, and you have some idea of what I'm talking about. In today's episode, we're going to not only get a better understanding of how and why the body does what it does, but also get even more clear on how to come back into balance so that you can be in a state of healthy responsiveness, playfulness, curiosity, not triggered, and just trying to deal. Steve Porges, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Uh, Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, The question you asked me is, you know, it could take several days, so we're going to try to um, reduce the scope of the question of uh, explaining the polyvagal theory to shift it into some more intuitive uh, uh, visualizations. We, as humans, are mammals. I mean, we, we evolve from uh, more primitive mammals, but mammals also evolve from more primitive vertebrates. And during this evolutionary history, our, we basically inherited some features that we tend not to be totally aware of until they're recruited. And one is that we actually have two defense systems. And many of the people listening and many of the people that you've had on have been very focused on a primary defense system that people call fight or flight that's very much dependent on uh, activation of the sympathetic nervous system. What we forget is or have forgotten is um, 
that there's another defense system, and that defense system is a total immobilization system that reptiles uh, employ all the time. And when I started to describe the polyvagal theory about having these two different uh, neural circuits that were related to defense, uh, I was talking to trauma therapists, and suddenly they, their eyes opened up and they started to understand what was going on because the polyvagal theory provided a, uh, a neurophysiological understanding of the experiences that many of their clients had gone through. In fact, many of the therapists had gone through as well. And that is to immobilize with fear in which they would dissociate or Im basically not uh, perhaps pass out, perhaps defecate. But basically, uh, go into a state like a reptile does to reduce metabolic needs. In a sense, they stop breathing and stop moving, and they start looking inanimate. And functionally, when people are traumatized, they're making an adaptive behavior to disappear, to become inanimate. And when you deal with clients, they often use those terms. So, and and I'm curious as well because. Is there, there's no conscious in, input in terms of how these systems uh, activate in I our think body, the, right? I think the discussion of consciousness implies a degree of volition or will or responsibility or shame. So we start moving the whole way that when people experience this immobilization, like being raped or being uh, threatened, um, the culture says, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you leave? without respecting what I would call the implicit be activity of the body, in sense respecting that the body goes into these states and they're not voluntary responses. They're functionally on a reflexive level. And because it's not a voluntary level uh, of responding, I actually had to come up with a new construct, a new word to describe the process that triggered people into these different physiological states. And I used the word neuroception because the nervous system was making this decision and creating this change in our behavior or what I would call a biobehavioral state without any level of awareness or consciousness. So we often are not aware of the triggers, but we are profoundly aware of the effect it has on our physiology. So if, we've, uh, if our body uh, detects features in the environment of, of, of risk of, uh, that would be considered more like danger, we might have a sympathetic excitation, meaning our heart might beat faster, we may sweat, we may be almost jumping out of our skin to try to navigate out of that place. We may not know the cues that are doing that, but our body is telling us something. And the problem within a psychiatric or psychological uh, worldview is that people often develop a personal narrative to justify their behavior. So if they're, in a sense, antsy or anxious and moving along, uh, moving, uh, jumping out of their skin, they may come up with a justification of why they have to leave the room or why they don't like the person they're with or why the person is irritating them when it could be something totally different. It could be uh, they could have, in a sense, a sound hypersensitivity. Uh, they could have shifted in terms of uh, glucose levels. They might not have eaten. It might be very warm in the, in the place and they're sweating. But their body has shifted to mobilize, to get out, and now they're creating the attributions. The other defense system, which is the critical one to people who are doing work in trauma, is this life threat system of shutting down. And it means that our body might go into that state and we may not e we, we're not in control. So that uh, certain people might pass out 
if they're talking, to, doing public speaking. Of course, they don't want to pass out. And what is the life threat cues that do that? Well, we really don't know. We know that the body responded to that. And now we want to flip to the other side, because this is really what this whole podcast is about. It's about relationships and the concept of safety. So we've talked briefly about two major defense circuits, uh, one of mobilization, of using the sympathetic nervous system, and the other one of basically shutting down, which uses a very ancient, uh, well, I use the word ancient, meaning that we share it with virtually every uh, more primitive vertebrate that evolved. And because the primary defense system for uh, ancient vertebrates was immobilization, reduced oxygen demands, reduced metabolic demands. And this circuit is mediated through the vagus. And this creates the paradox because up until the polyvagal theory, the uh, since the scripture was saying parasympathetic nervous system is a system of health, growth, and restoration, and sympathetic nervous system is a fight-flight system and was misunderstanding the complexity of our autonomic nervous system. That in part, they were always right, the parasympathetic support health, growth, and restoration uh, with all its vagal components. The vagus is the major component of the parasympathetic nervous system. However, the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus uh, can be recruited for defense, but it's only the more ancient vagal circuit. So what I want to get to the other side is that we have a newer vagal circuit which when this one is uh, uh, functioning, it basically keeps that sympathetic arousal fight-flight system and the other vagal system. It keeps them in the realm of supporting health, growth, and restoration, both of them. And it, this newer vagal circuit is linked to the features, uh, it's linked to the neuroregulation of the face. So it enables us to express uh, our bodily state in our facial expression express our bodily state in the intonation of our voice and it enables us to detect the intonation of other people's voices to determine whether we think that they're safe or not. So the ancient features that our body still has is that we detect safety primarily, believe it or not, through the intonation of another person's voice or the sounds in the background. Our body responds to that and our culture is so... Uh, functionally uh, linked to words or syntax, it forgets the importance of intonation of voice or prosody as the mediator of how we feel. That was a lot, I know. So you can unpack it. Yeah, great. And there's, yeah, there's a lot there. The The first thing that comes to mind is just um, just to revisit the mechanics for a moment just for people who, like when we talk about the Vegas, what are we talking about? What is that? The vagus is the largest, it's a, it's a large nerve in our body. It's a cranial nerve, meaning that it, is, it comes out of our brainstem and goes to virtually every organ within our body cavity. So it is, if people are interested in mind-body or brain-body relationships, they're interested in the vagus because not only does it influence these organs, but these organs are sending information about the body back to the brain. So about 80% of the fibers in the vagus are uh, sensory. So they're really a surveillance. It's a surveillance um, cable conduit bringing all the information about your organs to the brainstem. And it has actually two primary branches, one that goes to organs above the diaphragm and the other that goes to organs below the diaphragm. Uh, when I say primarily, so there's the issues, the one that goes to the organs below the diaphragm 
is uh, the one that is usually uh, can be recruited in this life threat defense. So that's what happens uh, when people get totally frightened. They defecate. Uh, but it also has some fibers still going to the heart. And that can slow your heart rate and drop her blood pressure so people can pass out. And the newer vagus uh, is in the brainstem linked to the nerves that regulate all the structures of the face and head, all the muscles. And this one has an inhibitory action on our sympathetics and the other vagus. So in terms of polyvagal theory, uh, there are two important principles that, that were embedded in what I was saying. The first principle was that there were basically three uh, phylogenetic branches of the autonomic nervous system. And phylogeny is really our evolutionary history. And those phylo phylogenetically uh, uh, evolved systems actually create a hierarchy because we use our newest circuits first, and when they don't serve in our quest for safety, we start using older circuits. So the newer circuit is the one which has the myelinated vagus that creates prosodic voice, intonation of voice. It creates smiling faces. And in your own words, it would, I think, use words like playfulness. Mm -hmm. The playfulness is coming from that myelinated vagus. And it requires or involves a lot of face-to-face -face and voice-to-voice -voice, uh, interactions, a lot of social referencing that some of the other people on your podcast have probably mentioned, that for a strong relationship, you have to have a degree of reciprocity, reciprocal behavior. And this is the system that does that. And uh, can you also touch on the relationship between that, the facial, facial muscle, muscles and your middle ear and uh, its effect on hearing? Because that's, oh yeah. that's curious. The, the, well, it, it's curious, but it's also very useful at dinner parties. If you ask, if you were to find a fossil, how would you know if that fossil was a mammal? You see, this has to, you have to go in the context of how important middle ear bones and middle ear muscles are. Well, you can identify a fossil as being a mammal by having detached middle ear bones. And what that enabled mammals to do, uh, it enabled them to detect acoustic sounds at higher frequencies that were air, airborne. So if the bones uh, weren't detached, they would be still stuck to the jawbone, which meant that to hear sounds, you'd be you're basically having bone conduction at low frequencies. So you could hear rumble. And this is how reptiles uh, basically hear. They hear through bone conduction. So if you're walking along a path and there's a snake, what do you say? How do you say that there's a snake in front of you? Do you use a high-pitched voice or a low-pitched voice? And you get the solution to this from monkeys. Monkeys, if they see snakes, are squealing at a very high-pitched voice. They're, they're basically articulating a vocalization in a frequency demand that the snakes can't hear. So the middle ear muscles enabled mammals to communicate in a frequency band that was not detectable by reptiles. Now here is the most interesting issue, that if we get scared or mobilized or go into a state of fight-flight, the tension to the middle ear muscles uh, is reduced. We can actually look at people's faces and get clues on that. If someone is mobilized or angry or scared, I'm not saying immobilized, but in a sense you can see their state changing by their behavior, you notice that the upper part of the face loses uh, the exuberance, loses the uh, playfulness, meaning that the muscle around the eye uh, is basically going flat in the upper part of the face. The muscle tone is flat. 
and we use words like flat affect to describe that. When the person's face is going flat, their neural tone to the middle ear structures are also getting reduced. So now they can hear rumble or predator sounds, low-frequency sounds, but not understand human voice. And again, if you're dealing with relationships, every relationship has some uh, minor to severe level of arguments, meaning people get, they start feeling a lack of safety in the relationship and they function to get angry or scared. And when that occurs, the muscles, the neural tone to the muscles of the upper part of the face, uh, that muscle tone is reduced. So the person's upper part of the face is no longer attractive, no longer uh, comforting. And when that occurs, the neural tone to the middle ear muscles changes, and now that person can't hear literally what you're saying. They're having difficulty understanding. And when people are in arguments, or even if you have children and you're trying to re and you reprimand your child, it's very questionable whether the child can even process what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking of couples you know where they're in in anger or rage mm -hmm. and one of them says to the other literally i can't even hear you right now right right i think that's being extraordinarily honest and the part the problem with that is when the person makes that statement what's the visceral response of the person to whom they made that statement is the person say oh i understand i'm very accepting of the fact that <laughs> right Right. It doesn't occur that way because that person's voice has already lost any level of regulating the other. Right. And, and so actually I'd like to move this conversation a little bit to kind of um, do a little integration so that we don't lose too many people. Great. Um, the issue is being a mammal is something very special. And mammals do a couple things very poorly. They don't deal well by being by themselves and they don't in any level of isolation or any metaphor of being isolated and of course that's part of what happens in couples and couples therapy is that the couple no longer feels safe with each other and that's because uh, safety is so important for a mammal because mammals never evolve to be isolates they evolve to co-regulate so co-regulation is the ability to, of two individuals, whether we're talking about dogs or a dog with a human or two humans, to help regulate each other's state. So we use words like caregiving, and we really don't mean caregiving. We mean something like care reciprocity. So if you're a mother or a father with a child and you're supporting that child, if the child kind of smiles back and conforms to your body, they're giving back to you and you're feeling very comfortable. If the child gets rigid, throws their head back and starts to cry, it's not very pleasant. And uh, so the whole issue is the reciprocity. And I actually want to go back one step further on this. Okay. Because we're in the political arena now. We're in a political time with the uh, primaries going on. And we're dealing with a lot of issues on uh, public media and on the television. We're bombarded with cues of danger. And one thing we forget is that the survival of mammals, and this means all mammals, not just humans, was due to cooperation and not to so-called survival of the fittest was not through aggression. It was through cooperation. And there's a, I can't spell his name, but Dobzinski was a evolutionary biologist. 
And he was basically emphasizing and arguing that people have misinterpreted Darwin and basically used this notion of survival of the fittest to talk about uh, aggressive behavior. And he's saying that the survival was through cooperation. So I just wanted to put that on the table. And if we go back to uh, the previous speakers that you've had who talked about relationships as a form of healing, we have to put the biology right on the table. And that co-regulation is uh, the recruitment of each individual's, the two people who are in the relationship. It's recruiting the reciprocal support of what I call their social engagement systems. The social engagement systems are what you see. You see the face, you hear the voice, and you see the posture and the gesture. But underlying that is this newer myelinated vagus, which helps regulate the other parts of your autonomic nervous system to support health growth and restoration. So the point that polyvagal theory makes is that the neurophysiology of social engagement behaviors is the same, recruits the same neural circuits that are required to support health growth and restoration. So even though your speakers were talking about mental health, the system is also linked to physical health. So on that level, what are, what are symptoms, for lack of a better word, that someone might observe about themselves or their partner that might indicate that their systems are being recruited for defense instead of all in alignment for health growth and vitality? So I would first look at uh, whether there's reciprocity in facial expressivity, eye gaze, intonation of voice. I would also ask the question or try to observe whether the vocalizations pattern lend 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 it themselves to reciprocal dialogue or were people stepping on each other's words? Yeah. How about in terms of what one might sense within their own body Uh or, um, and that could be a sensation in their body or it could be what they're noticing about what their body is doing or is not doing. Okay. So, so, okay. So if we focus on this issue of understanding bodily feelings and being aware of that, and we also lean on what we already know from the trauma literature, and that is traumatic experiences, um, or let's say the the perception or the um, it's the experience and not the event. Let's first start off by saying that trauma histories may have very little to do with the physical event and a lot to do with the with the physiological response. And once we get to that level, we're less concerned about the objective characteristics of the event and more focused on the subjective experience. So it's clearly witnessing the experience as opposed to documenting the objective aspects of the event. And I think we're making a very, very uh, uh, poor decision in how we treat people who have trauma experiences. Uh, we basically treat them as, as a legalistic uh, procedure to try to document and, and go after the uh, perpetrator. And we don't really... Uh, witness the subjective experience of the victim. So the the first thing is this ability to understand one's own body and feel one's own body. And if we don't feel our own body, if we don't have the sense of our own body, 
we have difficulty relating to other people's bodies. And I think, you know, when you had Peter Levine on, I'm sure he had a lot of discussion about the, those, that aspect. Because, exactly. Yeah, a feature of trauma histories is the lack of feeling one's own body. So there are a lot of cues, but I, in terms of the manifestation of behavioral cues, I, the simple thing is how well does a person play? It's, it may sound silly, but does the person have this ability to be uh, spontaneous uh, and reciprocal in the interactions, meaning can they read the cues? And if they don't read the cues, it's like playing uh, in a chaotic field and where you're doing behaviors and the behaviors are not contingent. And this gets people feeling very bad about the relationship. Yeah, and knowing what I know about your work I was, this just popped into my head. It's like, there's this question of how well are you playing? And then, pardon me if this sounds a little cross, but on the other end, it's like, how well are you pooping? Like that there's... Okay, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. (laughs) So so the issue is uh, this whole area below the diaphragm, and this goes into very powerful in terms of relationships. So what you find out is linked with trauma is that you have... uh, uh, basically GI problems, you have irritable bowel, or you have constipation, or you have diarrhea, or oscillating between the two. But those are also giveaways in terms of flags, telling you about sexual relationships or sexual performance, and literally accessibility to bodily feelings in the genitalia. So these become very important because the nerves regulating that subdiaphragmatic area are also regulating your, your genitals. So just to speak more concretely like let's say one person in a relationship is always constipated um and it sounds like what you're saying is that that is probably i mean apart from just they probably don't feel very comfortable um that that there's something that's connecting that to an actual disconnection with their the feeling and sensation that would lead to being more sensual with their okay. partner. Let, let, let's basically deconstruct that into very simple uh, adaptive behaviors. When is it optimal to be literally to inhibit uh, your um, uh, bowel movement? When is it important to inhibit it? When you're running away. Right. When you're mobilized. So fight flight uh, inhibits digestion. And what I often say in my talks is I basically ask people, what did their mothers tell them after they had lunch and they want to go swimming? And uh, the answer is universal. Uh, after you eat, wait an hour. Right. And the comment of that is how did your mother know the polyvagal theory? Because if you're going to run or swim or do things, you're going to inhibit digestion you inhibit digestion when you have a lot of food there, it's going to cause some problems. You're going to have cramps and other issues because the blood is going, in a sense, your resources are being recruited to digest. So eating food is a metabolically caustic, uh, I shouldn't say eating food, digesting food is metabolically costly. And so if we want to facilitate digestion, we have to, in a sense, not run or move around. So if you're dealing with people who are highly anxious or the metaphor would be tightly wrapped, high probability is uh, that their digestive system is going to reflect the same thing. And if their digestive system is reflecting it, it's also probably 
that their sexual responses or their behavioral responses to intimacy are going to reflect those features as well. So one thing that's interesting to me and a little confusing is you've mentioned that there's a hierarchy that goes on in terms of how these systems relate to each other and that um, the myelinated vagus, um, so in other words, the, the, the part of our nervous system that's contributing to social behavior and play and reciprocity, that that inhibits or has the potential to inhibit um, the defensive structures of the other systems. Um, but so where it gets confusing to me is how does it work? Are, do they are they partially online so that you know you could be sort because obviously if you're you're still functioning, you're still yeah. living and breathing, and yet you're in this you're okay. carrying around a fight flight. Okay, let's let let's let reinterpret what our autonomic nervous system is. Great. See what you were doing was basically assuming that a major component of the autonomic nervous system is there to support defense. And I'm really saying, nah, that's not what it's for. It's for supporting health, growth, and restoration. And it's only when it's used for defense that, that it interrupts the health, growth, and restoration. Basically, when we utilize our autonomic nervous system for defense, then we start having manifestations of various uh, disorders in those target organs. So the, the if you visualize it in a different way, and you think of this newer myelinated vagus as creating... A, as a controlling uh, circuit that enables those other parts of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and that older unmyelinated vagus that is primarily regulating your organs below the diaphragm, that when you have the newer vagus in functionally working, those other parts are doing their job to support homeostasis, support health, growth, and restoration. But if we pull off our uh, myelinated vagus, which is part of our social in, our social system, then we're vulnerable for using the autonomic nervous system for defense. And when we go there, then we have all these other problems. Yeah, so I think to clarify what I was asking, it was how does that mechanism work where those systems are being recruited for defense and yet uh, they're still doing their job? Not necessarily doing their job. So, okay. so the issue is if you're in a high sympathetic state, you're going, okay, if you don't have, the, if you view this hierarchically, then start things start making sense. Right. And if you retract that newer myelinate vagus and now recruit the sympathetics for fight flight, it's going to inhibit that subdiaphragmatic vagus is going to interfere with your digestion. Okay. So it's still happening, but it's ah. not happening as what? efficiently? Well, it's removing, uh, I would say, yeah, not efficiently, but you, let's say you now have uh, constant, uh, you're constipated. Is that saying it's still working, but not working real well? And you then, then you start taking, uh, it, it goes into irritable bowel. Is that working, but not working real well? The bottom line is that when these systems are in their, when the autonomic nervous system is in more chronic modes of defense, you could then start a manifestation. We evolved to deal extraordinarily well with acute uh, short-term mobilization defense, sympathetic defense, and rapidly calm down with a 
uh, a vocalization from another conspecific, another one of our species. That's how uh, mammals evolved, triggering uh, defense and then calming down. And in fact, if you start looking at the games that children play, especially mothers with babies, like peekaboo, you try to trigger a defense and then you bring a smiling face to calm down. This is a functionally a neural exercise of moving back and forth between two bodily feelings and not letting them get overwhelmed by it. But if we were chronically with a mother who is hiding her face and not giving any reassurance to the baby, what's going to happen to the baby's physiology? Right, it's going to be stuck in that state. Of... We, yeah, or it, yeah, it's going to be stuck somewhere that is not the same. It's not going to be, in a sense, have the resilience, have the uh, experience, and the, the term I use now is neural exercises uh, that create an expectancy that if you go into the state, you'll rapidly come out of it. Mm. Okay, so when you're dealing with couples, and when they go into a state and they can't come out of it, it's telling you something about their ability to be resilient with each other. Right. And it and that may or may not have any bearing on each other if I mean they may as individuals not have the skills right. in place to oh, come I, back. I think, yeah, I think we have to be careful with the word skill okay. because that already is attributing a responsibility to an individual. Let's say that their neurophysiological state doesn't quite have the capacity at this point in time to deal with these challenges. So it would change therapy from a, a basic learning uh, mode to a more experiential one where the nervous system is basically being moved through different states where it gains expectancies of being able to co-regulate or calm down. So it, it's like almost like riding a bike or being on a treadmill. The first time you get on it, you don't know why you're on it. And then your physiology adapts to the demands. And then when you get off it, your physiology adapts to not being on it. And it's that uh, challenges to the physiology that creates a neural exercise. We have the same thing in terms of our social interactions. I'm thinking about John Gottman's work mm -hmm. and his focus on that it's not so much the conflict, but it's the repair that happens yeah. after the conflict. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you would take it a step further that because to talk about repair, that seems to suggest like how we're navigating through language, uh -huh. the, you know, apologizing and, you know, understanding and all of that. And I wonder if there's this level of um, repairing that couples need to experience that's purely, uh, purely physiological. Oh, I, I think it's uh, totally the repair. First of all, uh, we have violations of expectancies occurring all the time. So in a sense, our body is functionally being injured when people uh, walk by without saying hello or they walk by us. All these things occur multiple times, and, and they're part of what it is to be alive. However, when, when you have a violation, it creates an opportunity for repair. And we do this frequently. We'll interrupt people while they're talking to someone else and we'll say, but we'll repair it. We'll say, I'm very sorry to interrupt you. We'll create an intention of, uh, of understanding. So the part that I wanted to really clarify on what you said as an example is it's not the words of apology. It's how they are said with the gestures and the intonation of the words 
that the partner responds to as being a valid apology or merely an explicit word. So the person has to feel that it's an apology. It has, it's a totally subjective uh, aspect. It's not the words. So it's not the words. It's how the words are being used. And we, we function so much in our society on the syntax and not enough on the intonation and understanding of our body's response to the sounds of words. Yeah, we um, actually, the episode that's coming out today, though by the time people hear this, it won't be today, it will have been two weeks ago, was an interview with Marty Babbitts, and he's talking about a context for communication that involves the meaning, it involves the way things are said, and then it also involves this meta level of thinking, am I creating safety in this conversation? Mm -hmm. um, so See, I, th I think that's all true, but there's a very, very simple set of biological uh, uh, antecedents, and that is bodies respond to intonation of, of vocalizations. Uh, if you have a dog, it's very, very obvious. It's obvious that dogs' uh, functional vocabulary or understanding uh, the, their ability to understand language is not many words, but they understand the intonation of the voice. So if you talk to your dog in a low-frequency monotone, the dog detects that as predator, did something wrong, goes right down to the ground, becomes submissive. If you talk to the dog like you would talk to a baby with a hyperprosodic intonation, what we call motherese, the dog's tail starts to wag and looks like the dog is smiling. And uh, you, you have dogs, right? Uh, I don't currently have a dog, but I, I have a long career in the okay. dog world. So, yeah. So you understand what I'm saying. Exactly. It's, it's only when we get to couples or to children or to uh, you know, human interaction that we tend to say, uh-uh, it's not how we say the words. It's the words themselves. So I'm really saying treat it, treat each other more like you treat your dog, and maybe life would be better. I mean, it's a very strange set of words to use. But if we were more playful, if we used intonation of voice, facial expressivity, and more gestures of, uh, of engagement, um, we would be regulating each other's physiological state. And this brings me to another comment that, that I'd like to make. Great. And that, that is the notion of connectedness or the ability to co-regulate our biological states. I see that as a biological imperative. I see that as the goal that, uh, that we have to do as mammals. We have to interact in a way to regulate each other's physiology. And that, I think, is really what you're interested in in terms of dealing with couples and relationships, is bringing it really and putting it out there and saying it's a responsibility uh, for individuals to interact, to make each other feel safe. And the consequences of that is not merely it's enjoyable or it's healing, but it has great effect on our mental and physical health because it supports those circuits of health growth and restoration. Yeah, and I'm curious to also think about what or to experience what that would be like if you were really focusing on that in terms of your interactions with everyone in the world. If you're interacting in a way that's creating that kind of safety, co-regulation, with every interaction you have. Well, I, I think you'd have to ask the question, do you want to be safe and interact with everyone? 
<laughs> you know, it's like... It, <laughs> well, there are some I, people you probably aren't safe with, so there... Well, or some people you don't want to be safe with. Right. So, I mean, we are selective, and, that's, and part of that selectivity is in part based upon the cues that the other person throws at us, even though they may not know they're throwing it. So the intonation of a person's voice, their, their presence in the room, how they look at you, the upper part, especially the upper part of the face, uh, will determine whether you feel safe enough to create dialogue. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm just remembering, I think, one of your interviews that I heard where you were talking about Bill Clinton and his mm. ability to talk to, you know, his arch enemies, the, yeah. the Republicans, and get them to agree and, you know, have spectacular progress, even though they would leave not knowing what they had exactly agreed to. Or, right, right. And that but, was... But I think, I think he had other people leaving his presence not knowing what they agreed to as well. But I think he was a very charming person. He, he I, and again, if we remove the politics of Clinton mm -hmm. and understand, you know, even to go through his developmental history, his need to co-regulate was great. I mean, he came from, you know, uh, his early childhood experiences were not supportive and not helpful in many ways, not optimal at least. And so his whole life was about, um, you know, regulating with others. Yeah, so I want to get to that. But before we do, mm -hmm. um, I have one more question around the phenomena that we experience in our bodies. And that is, where does shaking or trembling uh, fit in tree um there's actually uh, on youtube uh uh david uh, berselli interviewed me to ask me to explain that but peter levine's stuff also the transitioning that he uses as a metaphor for mammals that go into a life threat immobilization as they wake up um i see let, let's deal with the notion of the tremble I, it part of it has to do neurobiologically with a loss of uh, blood flow to the peripheral muscles. You can simulate that by doing an isometric if you push your arms against a wall long enough, and actually that's what uh, Perselli does as a treatment for trauma. He actually gets people to get the physiological feedback that they're, in a sense their muscles are no longer under voluntary control. But he is a very supportive and charming person with a wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully uh, prosodic voice. And uh, basically, people can now experience the physiology, feel safe in that. And this is where we're saying the implicit feeling is now uh, uh, basically put into a context of safety. So the explicit aspect of it is safe. And now you can physiologically feel this and kind of describe it without going into the panic that that would normally do. Peter Levine's strategies are very similar. And I've known Peter for uh, over 30 years. And I'm going to actually relate a story about Peter, which is uh, goes into some of these features. Uh, many years ago, Peter was very interested in CO2 breathing. Now, CO2 breathing is a way of uh, creating a physiological state where a lot of people would go into a state of panic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Peter was doing CO2 breathing with enough oxygen. It wasn't like you're going to be hypoxic. But in a safe context, and I did this with Peter in the late 1970s, it's quite an amazing phenomenon because suddenly you're no longer controlling your breathing. 
uh, because the uh, carbon dioxide, the CO2, is triggering the respiratory centers. And you're basically sitting there and you're observing your chest wall moving and you're not making it move. It's just moving. And I think this is uh, similar to what uh, tremor is all about. The notion is, can we be in a physiological state in which we can experience those implicit bodily feelings without them triggering what they had been previously associated with? So we're, in a sense, able to separate the physiology from those events. And once we can do that, then the events lose their power. And this is what I think somatic experiencing is about and other somatic therapies. It's about taking away the power of those implicit body memories. And it's not by telling people that you shouldn't get upset, you shouldn't be worried about that. It's about allowing the person to have that bodily feeling in a safe context. So it becomes a neural exercise. Right. So that would be why simply telling yourself, I'm safe, isn't necessarily going to do anything in those contexts. However, telling yourself you're safe and changing your breathing pattern may. Great. So let's talk about that. Okay. Um, Because I think everyone listening at this point is probably thinking, okay, I get it. And what do I do? What do I do when I'm clearly being triggered by my partner, by something in the world? Um, and and how are what are some strategies that I can incorporate into how I behave what? and how I interact with my partners that will foster the the social engagement safety oh. mechanisms? Okay, but remember, everyone is human, and which means that even knowing what to do doesn't mean that you're going to do it because your body goes into those states. And I'll just give you a few examples. You know, so you know, I'm I'm a academic, and academics are live in the I don't yeah they live in a hostile environment. Okay, they live in an environment that's constantly about evaluation. And I re- still remember this because one day I got a review back on a grant proposal or something that didn't make me feel happy, and I walked into my lab, and I I told my lab I said listen. You're going to be receiving cues from my face. Don't. It's not about you. It's about me today. So the idea was to separate initially, separate, let them know that something else was going on, that they wouldn't interpret my lack of affect, my lack of reciprocity as being caused by them. You can say that. But it's not always going to work, especially if you're in a leadership or responsibility position, because people want from you that uh, caring and, and uh, a sense of presence that you're there for them. And I had to tell my staff that I wasn't really there for them that day anyway. So the, the first part is that, yeah, we can be aware of our own implicit or bodily feelings, and we have to be respectful of our own feelings. What use I can use a word like we need to be self compassionate or compassionate of our own body needing to feel bad about something. That's not wrong. But we also have to be aware that if we feel this way, it's going to, in a sense, uh, emanate, it's going to affect others around us. So we have to be respectful of how people respond to us. Now, what I was going to give you was, in a sense, some basic uh, strategies. Um, the first one I want to tell you is we can help get that social engagement system back on board through breathing because if we can get that myelinated vagal circuit there to downregulate the other components of the autonomic nervous system from being recruited in defense, 
then we have the chance of, again, co-regulating with others. Now, there's a construct that I call the vagal break. The vagal break really refers to this hierarchical inhibitory action of this new myelinate vagus on the other components of the autonomic nervous system to prevent or to limit them being used in defense. Okay. Okay, so, but here is the clue. The clue is that that myelinate vagus becomes potentiated during slow exhalations. And during slow inhalations, we're literally removing that vagal break and allowing us to get more mobilized. So if you're uh, like a sprinter or any athlete or a weightlifter where you want to get mobilized before you do this event, you'll shift your breathing patterns spontaneously to doing longer inspirations and shorter expirations. But if you want to calm down, you shift it the other direction, longer exhalations. Now I will ask you, if now this is a projective test on you, when do you exhale slowest? When it's do I exhale? It's a trick question. Um, probably when I'm giving attention to ah, my breath. Uh, not necessarily. So uh, when you're talking, if you extend the duration of your phrases, you are extending the duration of your exhalation. Oh, sure, and definitely when I'm singing. Yes, exactly. And singing is the perfect one because it's utilizing muscles, other muscles of the social engagement system in terms of the articulation and the breath, but also your listening to get the intonation, so using middle ear structures. So singing is wonderful. And Now, I have to tell you that there, there were so many times as I was researching for this interview where... I would have these little like yes moments because I, they're, these are uh, reflect some things that um, my partner and I use and that we uh, also use in our coaching with clients. One of them being um, to to sing at your partner like in moments of anger to like improvise songs that are about whatever is happening in your environment. Um, and then another is to actually just use gibberish so you don't even have to worry about the content, but you can use the gibberish to to be vocalizing. Um, mm. We didn't really know what we were, like why it was working, why it was so helpful, but it felt like like this gave us a perfect pathway into, oh, that that could be why that works so well, is that we're actually down-regulating our our vagus through um, through just speaking sweet gibberish to each other yeah. in moments of being triggered. Absolutely. I think the gibberish is actually very insightful because you take the uh, the syntax, the, the actual words are removed. So it's all about sounds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially when words themselves can be so triggering in... Yeah, through associations. Exactly. And, yeah. So no, I think that's very insightful. But... Couples, you know, couples are always, uh, especially when they get defensive, are, are being triggered by very subtle things. Uh, and the issue, the metaphor is always going to be around, am I safe? Uh, which is really saying, can I co-regulate? Which is really saying, can I get a hug to calm down and repair? Or is body contact now aversive? Is it too dangerous for me to be around you? Right. So the so you have to do things before contact is actually safe or taken by your neuroception as a safe thing. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think the the ontogeny, the development of safety or the development of danger, uh, of how our bodies respond, is totally profound in terms of how we how our relationships evolve or how they deteriorate, um, because uh, they're not words. I mean, it, it's really, do you feel comfortable? I, I use a picture of bodies conforming, you know, hugging, and I, then I show a. a a, uh, on one of my slides, a Hallmark card of basically uh, cartoon figures, and you know that they love each other or care each other because their bodies are basically conforming. They're not making face-to-face. They're not looking at each other, but their bodies are, are basically conforming on the sides. They're leaning into each other. And so our, when we see that, we know couples feel safe with, with each other. These are triggers that we already know what they mean. They're iconic. So, and when you were suggesting the the extended exhalation, and you were suggesting also that an extended inhalation is counterproductive, so it oh, sounds yeah. like you would want to breathe rapidly in and then slow down your exhale. Is that? But you can see with couples who are not getting along well, they will, they will uh, basically huff and puff. That's the word huffing and puffing is. They're extending the duration of inhalations. They're getting themselves mobilized. You can see the muscle tension in their hands. So they're actually getting themselves physiologically set to have a physical fight, which may get manifested in running, crying, or whatever it is, but it's a a true defensive structure. You can get that physiological state to shift if they can shift their breathing patterns. And you can even make it work better if when they do their breathing that they push down on their diaphragm and so they can in a sense an- inhale more air so singers or musicians do a lot of diaphragmatic breathing or in the clinical world they call it belly breathing and belly breathing is not only extending the duration of the exhalation it's also stimulating the afferents the sensory part of the diaphragm that's sending signals back to the vagus so it's working on both levels this effort of uh, the motor uh, signal from the vagus and also the sensory signal to the central nervous system to enhance vagal activity. Now, since we're co-regulating each other, how do we how do we uh, make it more likely that we will co-regulate in the direction of play? or social engagement versus co-regulating in the other direction of escalating states Ah, of being in danger. Because escalation is not co-regulation. So it's disruption of regulation. So I guess to make it more concrete, um, here's the classic example of uh, a couple is in bed and one of them wants to have sex and so they make an advance and and everything feels like it's good, except something happens that kind of breaks the moment and the other partner goes into a state of being triggered and they're not really, they're not into it in that moment. Mm-hmm. So in an ideal world, the the partner who was taking the initiative may stop and realize that this is a moment to create safety with their partner. But what most often happens is that person, their own safety issues get triggered and then they're off to the races. So I I think you're absolutely right on that. And the answer is this. So the it's again, now you have two victims. 
And in a funny way, one has to be a more mature victim and say, I see the pattern. Can I break the pattern? So it's not symmetrical. Mm. So, so the cue of engagement, I guess what one might say, um, is to change the way of in, engaging, and that is uh, proximity, hugging, an arm around. In a sense, go to the level that the, that, that, that person's body needs, mm. and that person's body needs to feel safe. Now, to have sexual activity there's multiple levels of that the person has to feel safe before they can actually have sex. And there are people who have severe trauma histories who want to have sex, but when they try to, I'm talking about females, they defecate. Their subdiaphragmatic organs see this as a danger cue, even though their, in a sense, cognitive desires want to be amorous, want to be hugged, want to do that. Uh, so the, the cues would be, you have to be more prosodic, you have to be more gentle, you have to allow the person to feel safe. So issues have to become more emergent and spontaneous and not seen as a sense of responsibility. And where does the role of movement play in? Because movement could represent being, like your body being recruited in fight or flight, and movement is also being recruited, um, happening when you're reaching out to hold your partner. Um, well, you see, it's the difference between play and fight, or play and fight-flight behaviors. Play involves mobilization, but it also involves face-to-face -face or at least voice. So if voice is used as the guide, if you continually talk and use prosodic voice or gesture, then the movement is seen in a different way. But historically, humans have used uh, surrogates for voice, and they call that music. So they say, let's put some music on. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. so what the music is, they're not putting rap music on to have an intimate moment. They're putting on certain uh, uh, vocal, vocal music or music uh, with instruments that are duplicating functionally female voices or or tenor male voices. They're not using low bass voices. They're creating a the the same acoustic features that you would use to talk to your dog to calm your dog down, or if you had a baby to calm your babies down. But they're using it with with music, or listening to it as music. Yeah, that was something I was wondering about actually, because you you do talk about how the the lower frequencies represent danger and predator mm -hmm. and higher frequencies being safety and social engagement. And then I was thinking about, well, why do people like to dance to music that has a really low bone th um, uh -huh. vibrating bass? Well, and let, let me clarify. It's not high frequencies. High frequencies are squeals and they're danger. It's something in the middle that we find in terms of intonation of voice and vocalizations is actually well-defined frequency band that we hear and feel safe and can communicate with. Now, the other question you're bringing up is it's not necessarily the low frequencies. It's the issue of the rhythm, and we're mobilized. Dan dancing that you're talking about is social dancing, I think social dancing, with the low frequencies giving you the rhythm, and you're moving with that, and you're maintaining face-to-face, -face, so it's play. Dancing is mobilization. It's play. And slow dancing you, is different than 
uh, fast dancing, slow dancing, you lose the face-to-face and you now have body contact. It's, it's, it's very predictable in terms of what the features are. But if you were slow dancing and a lot of deep bass music came in and then the rhythm went up and you try to keep slow dancing, it would be incompatible. Your body wouldn't, wouldn't like that. It wants to move. Right. I think what I was what I was wondering is if that low bass actually is part of what evokes your mobilization response, but then because you're hopefully in a safe environment, yeah. then that becomes expressed through play and dance. I, I think that's very insightful. I think we do, uh, if we're comfortable, the low frequencies that would have naturally caused a triggered predator responses are playful. So I, I, I often talk about Barry White, um, who gives this very low, melodic, low voice, uh, which is very sexual, but it's done not in a public arena. It's music that is played in a very private, safe place. The interesting part of his actual songs because I actually went to listen to them, as he does the introduction in this very deep, low voice. But when he's singing, the frequency goes up to a higher pitch. So it goes moves into this other realm. The master uh, composers of classical music, uh, they would always start their symphonies with uh, music that was uh, emulating a female vocal. So there's going to be violins, flutes, it's going to be in a certain frequency range. And then when you felt comfortable with the melody, they would be handed off to lower frequency instruments until all the instruments were involved in it and you felt comfortable with all of them. Mm. Wow, it's amazing. So I can see how the way that our the way that we experience music could be directly related to how we find our feelings of safety and absolutely Th- yeah. think of some of the second movements of classical music music where uh, there's an impending storm where there's a low bass string basses uh, in a monotone or then the high frequency also monotone violins you start getting all the anxiety uh, from the sounds of that because they're duplicating human voices and physiologically our own experiences to threat danger and, and the uh, unpredictable. Yeah, or in like the modern film, there's nothing yeah. quite as ominous as that big low rumble yeah. followed uh, by silence. And it's like you can feel the whole theater just, uh, you know, be ready to to fight or flee at that absolutely, point. Absolutely. They're not, in a sense, the people who are giving you music backgrounds for movies are very trained, very skilled, and very understanding of all these features. I'm wondering, uh, Steve, first of all, I want to just appreciate you for showing up and being so generous with your time. And, um, you know, what we've talked about in the past hour represents the past 40 years of your your life's work, right? And um, probably even prior to that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, thank you for making it real for us and, and uh, giving us a sense of how it's actually uh, works for us in our lives and um, and just for your contribution to the field of human wellness. I really appreciate that. Well, well thank you, Neil. And opportunities like talking to you provide me with the challenge of making what I've spent my life on accessible to, to, uh, to the real world. 
Well, and on that note, I'm wondering if there are any last little tidbits that you would like to leave our listeners with. We've talked about um, prosody in your voice, so making your voice more musical. Um, We've talked about the power of touch and seeing yourself as a vehicle for creating safety with your partner. Um, and I'm just wondering if there are any other things that, that jump out at you as like, oh, yeah, that's, that's one gem. Well, I, I think what we need to do is be very respectful of our body's own responses because our feelings, how our body is responding, is manifested in our behavior. So we, we can't really fake it is what I'm saying. And the, the idea is to be very respectful when your body shift state to be respectful of that and to be respectful of the other person in your environment because they're rea- they're going to be reacting to your bodily changes even though that may not be your motivation you know this brings me brings up one last question for you which is what we were talking about earlier was how you shouldn't necessarily make meaning out of the response that you should trust your body and and mm-hmm. honor what you're, what's happening with your body, but you shouldn't necessarily make meaning out of it. Um, and yet there might be a time when it does make sense to make some meaning out of it. So I'm wondering if you have any insight on the distinction there. Well, I think the first part is respecting the body's response without justifying. I think everyone gets into trouble when they justify their behaviors, which are often riding on top of their physiological state shifts. So if they get anxious and they start acting out or going to rage, rather than seeing what happened to their body and seeing the manifestation of their behavior as literally riding on this physiological state, they want to make it justified. They want to be a good person. They want to say that the other person did this and therefore they're entitled and not necessarily really entitled, but their behavior is justified. So I I think we need to basically stand back before we go into any level of uh, that personal narrative and understand that the personal narrative in couples or any relationship is, you know, it may not be true. It may be what we're doing. Uh, to hold together to justify what our behavior is, but it may not be the the real process. The process can be that there's a physiological state shift, and we're functionally acting out, and we have to be respectful of that. Right, and it strikes me that if you at least focus your initial attention on regulating and then co-regulating then you're at least in a position where you can have better information about what's really happening in your relationship. Yeah, I think if I were to give one piece of advice, and that I would say, before you react, listen. (laughs) It's almost like saying, don't use the physiological state you're in as the motivator for behavior. Just hold it for a moment and and get a better evaluation of the context. Hmm. Yeah, maybe with a few long exhalations. Ah, you see, now you're developing an integrated therapy. (laughs) (laughs) It's what I do, Steve. Well, thank you so much for your time today on Relationship Alive. And if our listeners will have links, of course, to your your website and your work, but if if there are special ways that you'd like uh, listeners to find out more about what you do, what could they do? Well, actually, the webpage is fine. And there's also they, there's also a place to send uh, certain types of questions or information there. That's, that's fine. And there's a list of where and when I'm talking that I try to keep relatively up to date. 
Right. And also to let our listeners know, there are lots of opportunities to uh, get more information from Steve. Um, he posts links to all all the interviews he's done, um, or at least many of them, which can be found on YouTube or other podcasts. Um, he's very generous with yep. sharing his information. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Steve. Well, thank you, Neil. Thank you. It was a very interesting hour. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.